I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Cabin fever has started to set in as we spill over into the second half of the lockdown. Every day is Groundhog Day. You thought this would be the opportunity to write the great South African novel, but instead you spend hours reading COVID-19 worst-case scenarios, taking your temperature every seven minutes, and fixating on the rising number of worldwide infections. We're traveling into the heart of the lockdown to bring you I'm a Booker Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, a short and sweet distraction from the pandemic, because what you need to do right now is relax, stay at home, and avoid the coronavirus like the plague. Author's lockdown, T minus seven. Today marks the 27th anniversary of the assassination of Chris Harney. It was a watershed moment in South Africa, and anyone who is old enough remembers where they were when they heard the devastating news. For many, the principled, popular, and revered revolutionary was the president we never had. He left a grieving South Africa, but 12-year-old Lindiwe Hani hadn't lost the head of the South African Communist Party. It was her daddy who had been cruelly taken away from her. Tragedy after tragedy was to follow. An abortion, the death of her boyfriend, the death of her sister. To escape the trauma, Lindiwe disappeared into a fog of cocaine and booze until she smashed into rock bottom. In 2014, she booked herself into rehab and became sober. In 2017, she penned her remarkable memoir, Being Chris Harney's Daughter. She bears her soul, revealing the details of her descent into addiction and the hard road to recovery. And most of all, it's a story of redemption. People often wonder what South Africa would be like if Chris Harney hadn't been killed. It's an impossible question. And while we can speculate, we just don't know. What I do know, though, is that Chris Harney, the revolutionary father, would have been extremely proud of his courageous daughter, who has triumphed over her demons and beat them into submission. She also took up Melinda Ferguson's crazy challenge to produce the lightning-fast lockdown book in just seven days. And Lindiwe wrote a story called Just Breathe, Lindy. Welcome, Lindy. Please, could you read us Thank you, extract? Jane Anderson. From both your uh, uh, be, being Chrisani's daughter and just breathe, Lindy. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to talk to you again. Um, I will actually start with an extract of the short story that I wrote the, for the mad rush of the Corona Chronicles. Just breathe, Lindy. Mom, you have a problem. Which one, my love? Mom has quite a few to contend with. My daughter Kaya proclaimed this as I tried to jam as many groceries as possible into the trolley. The impending lockdown was imminent. I knew that the president was about to announce it and I didn't want to be caught off guard. The shops were devoid of people on that Monday. I guess the majority were waiting to hear from the commander in charge. Not me, however. All the signs were pointing to only one outcome, lockdown. That afternoon, I told Kaya that we're going to the movies for the last time in a long time. And as we munched popcorn and laughed uproariously at the antics of Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, I had a moment of realizations that our lives would never be the same again. Driving home, we caught the end of the president's speech. 
and all my fears were confirmed. Lockdown. South Africa was at a standstill. Beside essential services, people were to remain in their homes. Restriction of movement. Breathe, Lindy, breathe. Don't show Kaya how much you attempted to drive both of you into the nearest tree. Oh. That's all I'll give you, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, I want you to go get it. Absolutely. And then the extract that I've decided to read from um, the memoir is actually an extract about what today represents and what happened on this day 27 years ago. Your father's been shot. I had woken up on Saturday, the 10th of April, 1993, with a joyous song in my 12-year-old heart. The previous day, my mother and I had driven to the mountain kingdom of Lesotho for the Easter weekend. My older sister, Crazy, had a school social on Saturday night, so Diddy had offered to stay with her at our home in Dawn Park, Boxburg, so that he could take her to the hair salon and play taxi in his old Corona. Crazy was, unusually, was usually such a bookworm, but she had been really excited about the party. Although I would miss being with Diddy over Easter, going to my room and to sleep over with my best friend, Noma Timba, whom I hadn't seen for months. From the day we set eyes on each other as energetic five-year-olds on the first day of prep school, we'd been two mischief makers joined at the hip. We did everything together. Saturdays meant we would go and watch a movie in town. I never really minded what was showing. I loved getting lost in the dark of the cinema, transfixed as the pictures flickered up on the screen. They would transport me far away from my tightly tucked away unruliness that came from constantly having to say goodbye to my beloved Diddy, who we hardly ever saw for more than a few weeks. That morning was already warm in Marcelo, despite the fact that winter was on its way. As we were getting ready to catch the mid-morning feature, along with Nomatemba's older brother, my sister Kwezi's best friend Balisa and her father appeared at the door. Mr. Mayani looked frantic. He immediately asked where my mother was. No one had a cell phone back in 93, so you could, you could sometimes search the entire town looking before finding the person you wanted. I offered to pass on a message, but Mr. Mayen insisted he needed to speak urgently to my mom face to face. Not wanting to appear rude, I suggest he try the hair salon. But time was ticking on and we still needed to get finished. I hated missing the beginning of a show, that swelling in my heart that something extraordinary was about to happen. And at this rate, we'd be lucky to make it in time for the end credits. But my irritation was soon forgotten as we cracked jokes, finally weaving our way through the dusty streets of polo ground, kicking stones, taking shortcuts through the houses. Then Nomatemba's brother suggested we go past the Mayene household, which was, which was along the way to ask his best friend to join us. As we approached the house, I immediately noticed my mother's Opel record parked in front. I should have told Mr. Mayene to try looking for her at his own house. I remember Tebo saying, see, your mom is here. If you're so worried about being late, maybe she can give us a lift. Knowing my mother, I responded, yeah, right. As I opened the gate, my cousin rushed out to us. Her eyes were streaming with tears. Other people began to emerge from the house. Confused, I searched desperately for my mother's face in the small crowd. The moment I saw her eyes, I knew something bad had happened. As she made her way unsteadily towards me, pale and bewildered, she did not look herself. For a moment, my heart stopped. And then those words, your father has been shot. Wow. I'll end it there, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you. Whew. It's a very personal book. You share intimate details about what you went through. How was it to be so open, to make yourself so vulnerable? Well, by the time that I, I was in the midst of writing it, it, it felt 
cathartic. And I, I think the one thing that made me carry on with it is I just kept, I don't know why, I kept on just telling myself that this is just for me, this is just for me, no one's going to read it. Because I think that if I concentrated on other people reading it, I might have been more wary of being so open. So, and my whole thing to Melinda was that I either say, tell everyone everything, or I don't do it. And that's why it, that's why it came at the right time, because a few years before when Mel had approached me to do it, I was still in the throes of addiction. And I didn't, and I didn't tell her that, but I knew that I couldn't write a book without discussing that aspect of my life. Otherwise it wouldn't be honest. Tell us about smashing into rock bottom. Gosh, I mean, it's when, when I was in it, when I hit rock bottom, I, it came so quickly that it actually took me by surprise because I can tell you that a week before, I thought that everything was fine. So when I finally hit rock bottom, when I realized that there were only two ways that this was going to end up, either I was going to continue using and I could visualize it, Jonathan, that a month from that date when I sat, I saw myself on the streets of Hilbra. Yeah. So it was either that I was going to continue using, go to the extreme because now cocaine wasn't working for me and wasn't worth it. So I was even contemplating trying other drugs. So I, I visualized myself a month from now in the streets of Hilbra, not caring where my child was, or I was going to get help. And I didn't, and I didn't mind the, in, in my thought process, I thought to myself that if I continue using, I'm definitely going to die. And the prospect of death didn't scare me. But the prospect of my child living a life thinking that her mother didn't, didn't try everything possible to stop using, um, that's what petrified me. And as real as I could, I just saw her picking up drugs for her to cope. And that's when I decided that the cycle of pain in our family has to stop with me. I refuse for my daughter to inherit my long issues. Your daughter, Kaya, is now, I think, 15 or 16. Um, 15. 15. Has she read your book? No, no, she hasn't. She, she read the, the, she started with the, the um, extract that I read and she stopped. And then, um, but through the years, obviously, when I've given interviews, she's heard them. And then um, her class invited me to speak about it. So I went to her school and I spoke in front of her and her classmates. So she's heard it from me. What do you tell her about her grandfather? I tell her about my father, not, not, the, not Chris Honey, the leader. So I tell her the stories, what he would do at home, how he'd reprimand us, how embarrassing he could be, <laughs> um, his, his jokes, his loving nature. You know, so I tell her family stories because um, I, I always tell her that if you want to know about him as a leader, the information is readily out there. But I, I don't want her to, I mean, there's definitely the pride, but I want her to think about him more in that grandfatherly role. But, you know, she doesn't really ask a lot of questions about him. You harnessed the courage to confront metaphorical demons when you became sober. And then you confronted real life demons the man who conspired to kill your father, Clive Darby Lewis, and the man who pulled the trigger, Janos Volus. The meeting with the two killers were very different. 
Can you describe meeting them? Mm-hmm. So the first one that the first person that I met was um, Clive Derby Lewis, and that meeting was very weird. Like I, I, I thought that I was going to, going there without any expectations, but but I realized that I was expecting something and it's not necessarily remorse or anything, but I was expecting, you know, when you, I was expecting to hear like earth shattering reasons about why, but all I got was a lot of excuses about the reason and blaming every single thing besides himself. You know, I did this because Declec did this. I did this because someone else did that. So I, I left there knowing that I never wanted to see him again and I got nothing from it. And I actually left with a very, I don't know, especially towards his wife. I just left there feeling cold. Like I, I knew that this door had shut forever and I didn't want to open it again. But when I met Yanush, who was the actual assassin, that was completely different. Um, I didn't expect to identify with him. And I always say that maybe I blame my um, rehab and NA lifestyle because you know we must always share the sim- see the similarities rather than the differences. So I went in I went in there with that kind of um, outlook, and I and I connected with him. I felt more of a connection with him, which I could, was inexplicable. And when I left, I I was I felt relieved, I felt confused, and I just knew that I would want to see him again. You know, there was something there that I wanted. To you write that the moment Valus murdered your father, your lives became forever linked. Can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so I, when I was speaking to Valush, um, um, and he was telling me about his life, I realized that his daughter and myself, I think, are a few months apart or even a year, but we're basically the same age. And um, the daughter also now has a daughter, and I have my daughter. And he was saying that the summer before he shot my dad, he actually went to Poland. I think he already knew that this was going to happen. So he traveled to Poland and he said the one thing that he wanted to make sure to do was to teach his daughter how to swim. And the person who taught me how to swim was my father. That's when I realized that on that day, when Walu shot my father, two little girls lost their father. And I always say that as much as that it's not in my control, because I know that I would do anything to see my father, even if it's for one minute. So if I could give another girl the, the, the joy, the pleasure, the privilege of spending time with her father, I feel like it is my personal responsibility as a human being. Sure. For you personally, what is your father's legacy? Do you know, Jonathan, that I am still trying to process that about what is Chris Honey's legacy. I know that as a father, his legacy in our lives is for me to always be continuously pushing myself, continuously challenging myself, continuously trying to see what I can do to make people's lives better and how I can contribute towards that. And that's why the first step in, in doing that was to get myself well, because if I am not well, there's no way that I can touch anybody else's life. So I know that part of his legacy and part of what he's passed down to me and that I know I'll pass down to my daughter is that we we are brought on this earth to make a difference. And I always say to my to Kaya that it doesn't he made a difference in millions of people's lives. But for us, we start with one. 
every single day that we make a difference in someone person's life, that is the legacy that we have to continue. So in our family, that is the legacy. It's, it's, it's that we were, we were brought on this world to make a difference in other people's lives and to make change happen. Um, his legacy to the country is, is almost, it's actually very similar. It's that we mustn't rest and think that the work is done because the work is always evolving. And once we relax and think that everything is sorted, that's when we lose perspective. So it's always to challenge the status quo, always to make sure that the people that were hard fought for eventually get equal rights. How are you marking the anniversary of his assassination in lockdown? Um, I'm going to take a moment to reflect on him, um, which is something that I actually never do because um, the 10th of April is already jam-packed with um, going to the graveyard with different politicians, etc. So I'm actually looking forward to the first time since he passed away, it just being me and remembering him and appreciating him. And I w- for some reason, this year feels hard. And I, it is, I think, because that I'm not distracted. So I do, it's going to be emotional. I mean, I'm already getting teary thinking about it. But I think because um, I only really started the mourning process, not 27 years ago, but when I went into rehab, that's why it still feels fresh. So I might probably have a good cry, um, talk to him, pray, and cook, Jonathan. <laughs> what is your strategy for not going crazy during this lockdown? Well, I do have a job, so I am working full time and cleaning. Lord have mercy, Jonathan. I've never <laughs> felt like such a privileged Todd than to complain that I have to clean my own house. Um, I have to cook for my child. You know, just the things that I used to do. Like I used to cook for once a day. Now it's like two, three times a day. Um. I'm exercising, I'm writing, I am talking to people, I'm irritating my daughter. <laughs> so just the usual things. <laughs> How is she coping? Listen, she has been doing online school until last Friday. Now she is man down. She sleeps a lot. That's what she does. She sleeps a lot and she watches Show Max and Netflix. <laughs> and then she eats and then she'll come say a sarcastic comment. And then that's about it. (laughs) What is the first thing you're going to do when the lockdown is lifted? If the lockdown is lifted? I'm going to go see my family. I miss my niece and I miss my nephews more than I miss their parents. Shh, don't tell them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm going to visit my mom. I'm going to take my two dogs for the longest walk because they are going crazy. And actually, I'm going to go to the graveyard and just lay flowers um, and just say thank you to my father and my sister and tell them that I miss them. We're going to subject you now to the sound effects. Rorschach test. I immediately flash back to my days at St. Cyprian's um, (laughs) School for Girls. And that could have been any Eucharist service that we are subjected to. So I just saw myself in the schoolgirl uniform having to kneel and stand and kneel and stand while this is going. It was an Anglican school. I should have started with that. So that's what it reminded me of. That is the beginning of a movie. It reminds me of that lion. You know, I think it's Goldwyn, Goldwyn and Mayer. 
when it starts and then that lion roars just before the start of a movie I was immediately gone back to my childhood watching Elvin and the Chipmunks Okay you just threw me in the middle of my worst nightmare because I have a fear of birds so instead of like being comforted by these sounds <laughs> my the hairs on my back immediately stood up and I started darting around my house thinking where are they so that that you do that memory that just brings up memories of being chased by a chicken and running away from feathered creatures so that just reminds me that it's always time to get up it sounds like a samsung annoying ring <laughs> Thank you Lindiwe. Thank you so much Jonathan. Take care Lindiwe. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to I'm a Booker Booker the Quarantine Chronicles live from the lockdown. You can subscribe to I'm a Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured email jonathan.anser@gmail.com. I'm a Booker Booker.